stand-up comic joke it up one time. Funny. of like a 90s porn? No, you'll... Let's talk about sex. Oh, there you go. Okay, I think I hit the 90s right. Let's talk about all the good things oh, and the bad things that make me. Let's talk about sex. Please do not belittle the incredible work that I put into rewriting no, the lyrics. Was, wow. <laughs> All right. I got someone to come in and do the libretto. So what are you talking about? Uh, an entire team. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sets. This is a comedy geek cast about the science and craft of stand-up comedy. I am your host, Jeff McBride. I am utterly incapable of chilling out. And with me is my co-host, Harrison Tweed, unfortunately. Hello. I can chill pretty quick and easily. <laughs> Today's theme is joke theory, and we are joined by the magically hilarious Harrison Greenbaum. <laughs> hey, nice to be here. Harrison Squared today. Which is funny because there's a famous magician named Jeff McBride. Oh, I well know that. <laughs> Let me tell you how much I know that. This is incredible. I'm the only person who knows both Jeff McBrides. I feel oh, very yeah. special. So I get his emails. Uh, and for the last, because I have jeffmcbride.com, and for the last oh, four man. years, I have been messing <laughs> he runs with the Jeff magical McBride. mystery school. Oh, I know that too. <laughs> so oh, the mystery school, but I added magical. So, yeah, his house of mystery. I'm well aware of it. Oh, so, man. So I love that you know him. Whenever I get his emails, I will then forward them to him under the conceit that I believe he's truly actually magical and that he's an evil wizard. Uh -huh. And every time he'll be like, thanks, you don't need to blah, blah, blah. And then I'll be like, please don't use your cauldron and turn me into a newt or whatever. I don't know. Please, I'm very scared. Uh -huh. And then he's just like, we have to talk because I'm doing a roast at a big magic convention in oh, like a week. Oh, oh. Oh. And it's like it's basically like the state, like the way Andy Kindler does the State of the Comedy Union at JFL. Uh -huh. This is like sort of like a State of the Magic Union, <laughs> and this would be incredible. So, so it gets it gets so much better. I'm gonna very quickly, and we're gonna get into this, but I'm dying for you to know this. So then I got bored with that, and then I started. I got an email. I got an email from one of his students who was trying to find his house of mystery, and then I wrote. Oh Lord! I wrote back to that person. You this, must first answer three riddles. No, 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 no. Over the top. This over the top, like. J.R.R. Tolkien-esque language, writing back just be like, like, he is an evil demon from another dimension who has stolen my identity. I'm the only one from that timeline who understands what's going on. And, <laughs> and please do not go to his den of evil. He is trying to steal your essence, your magical essence. He practices blood magic. Please, please, please heed my warning. However, if you will, if you go heedless into this, his maw of wrongness, then, <laughs> then, then, then here is his actual email. Like, literally <laughs> over the top. Never in my, in my wildest dreams would this have been anything anybody took seriously. And then I got a call about a month later from someone who was in a magic class with this crazy lady and, and was saying that basically in all this little secret, like, closed off magic groups on Facebook, she's been tr trying to get to the bottom of this to find out if he really practices blood magic or not. <laughs> oh, man. And then she called me. <laughs> and I have voicemails from this person. I want every bit of this paper. Okay. All right. This is so exciting. It's so because he takes himself very seriously, like flowing robes, yes. and it's yes. about magic yes. with a K. Yes. Like yeah. there's a real magic in the world, and you're channeling yes. it as a yes. magician, and uh -huh. you're supposed to be a magician 24 seven. Like at any moment, you can burst out into a trick. So you have managed to hit the perf like yes. it's, you're the perfect person for this because if anybody is trying to get to the mystery school, they kind of do believe a little bit in magic. So mm -hmm. you've you've really found the exact I had perfect no marks. idea. And this person who <laughs> called me was like. 
I just needed to hear it from somebody like, you don't understand who you're dealing with, who you wrote this email to. Are you intentionally trolling her? I'm like, I wasn't trolling anybody. I was fucking around. I wasn't even like, never, never did I think anybody would believe this. And he's like, oh my God. He's like, this is my favorite thing ever. And I was like, oh, I love you. Uh, <laughs> and we're talking about it and laughing. And wait, like, this is McBride? No, this is the guy who was oh. in the magic class with this girl. Yeah, yeah. And, and how she's like, like a shaman. And like, oh my God, it was so funny. <laughs> oh so yeah, no, they like drum circles and they like oh my God. dance around the fire. Like it's... <laughs> It's, it's hardcore. Yeah, so Harrison Greenbaum is yes. a wonderful comedian, also a magician, and has is the is, bridge between worlds. Yeah, he's an incredible. <laughs> he, you want him for your drum circle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's get started <laughs> with a bit that Harrison select uh, the Harrison the Greater selected. <laughs> right, there's two Harrisons. Yeah, yeah, we just call you Tweed. Yeah, yeah. You can call me Tweed. I'm good with that. Yeah. <laughs> This bit is by Emo Phillips. It's called How God Works, The Guardian, The Best Joke Ever, and It's Mine. (laughs) (laughs) It's um, from September uh, 1980. I believe very strongly in the power of prayer. When I was a little boy, I used to pray every night for a new bicycle. Then I realized the Lord in his wisdom doesn't work that way. So I just stole one and asked him to forgive me. Uh, and I got it. Of course, now I pray a simple prayer every morning. It's an ecumenical prayer. Whether you're Catholic or Jewish or Muslim or Hindu, I think it speaks to the heart of every faith. It goes, Lord, please break the laws of the universe for my convenience. <laughs> Oh, that's a great bit. Yeah. So, uh, that's Harrison, two bits. What, yeah. Yeah, two bits. <laughs> two, two, two jokes, I think, there you go. within a bit, yeah. right? So um, why did you pick that bit in particular with joke theory? Well, the, the bicycle joke, the ecumenical prayer is great, but focusing just on the bicycle part. Okay. For me, I feel like it hits everything you need to know about a joke. It's a perfectly constructed joke in every way on every level. Uh-huh. I, I think in terms of it being surprising, it's like a very good twist. That I, I think you don't see coming necessarily, and it makes a really strong point. And and I guess the the reason I like that joke is I, I took a poetry class with Helen Bendler, who was like the poetry critic for the New York Times. Oh, I was really hoping we would spend most of our time on poetry. Let's talk about Bendler. <laughs> <laughs> She's this like wonderful old lady, and she would read these poems with like all of the right, you know, pronou- like just the right dynamic. It was inc- it was an incredible class. But on literally the first day, when you're like deciding whether you want to take the class or not, mm-hmm. she goes, "I'll ask her any questions," and somebody's like. Why poetry? Which is like a crazy, it's Harvard. So we have all these like type A, like, so why do you dedicate your whole life to poetry? Like asking this woman to like explain her whole life to him on the first class. And she goes, because it's, it's the way of expressing the most amount of meaning in the smallest space, poetry. Mm-hmm. So you can be like novels worth of ideas in like a stanza. And so I disagree with her. I think jokes are actually even better in that realm and that mm-hmm. they can cram universes of ideas in a yes. very tiny space. Mm-hmm. And what Emo Phillips does in like what, two lines, three lines mm-hmm. is universes of, of understanding about religion. And so it really speaks to the power of jokes and, and really good joke writing 
that it, he can really sort of get to the root of all religion in two sentences. Mm-hmm. Like that's incredible. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why that joke really stands out to me. And then it really gives you a good lens to evaluate all the other parts of joke theory because it's such a perfectly sort of written joke. Yes. It is so tight. There is no yeah. fat on which it. Which is one of the, th- I have a theory that there are three C's to every joke. And, let's, and one of the C's is compression, which is about that compactness, which right. is another C. Let's, exactly. and, we'll, and we'll get to that. Not one of the um, three C's, but lots of C's. Yeah. <laughs> well, let, we'll, we'll get to that. Let's start with twist and point. Twist and point. Which, yes. by the way, um, I cannot read that without thinking twist and point. Like, oh, like a dance. Like yeah. a delivery system. <laughs> like, and Just also, twist and point. It could be like a Broadway musical number. Right. Yeah. And you had a Broadway show, <laughs> right? I, I off Broadway, off Broadway, off Broadway. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. I wish that would have been incredible. <laughs> That's like a thousand seats. I hope you call it Twist and Point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, so Twist and Point. Let's talk about it. I, the reason I like love joke theory is I'm very sort of I guess mathematical, scientifically minded when it comes to my joke writing, and so I wanted to sort of figure out like what are the things that are making jokes work. And the twist and the point specifically comes from me trying to figure out what's the difference between a bad joke and a good joke. Mm -hmm. And then what's the difference between a good joke and a great joke. And the twist is sort of the difference between a bad joke and a good joke. Because I I was trying to figure out why aren't these jokes working? Like when I see comics at the club, like why didn't that joke work? And on a very basic level, if a joke isn't getting a laugh, it's because there's no surprise. Like a good joke has some kind of surprise, some kind of plot twist. Um, Mike Bent, who's like a professor of comedy writing at Emerson, but also a magician. So I know him from like sort of both worlds. He talks about story A and story B, that a joke is story A. And then all of a sudden you realize he's actually telling story B. And so just, to be, just, just to be fair here too, that story A, story B thing is, goes back a long way. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's not just him. Like that's been around that particular element. of. Oh yeah. I just like the way oh. he expressed it as okay, story A, story B. Cause Got it's it. like. It, the idea that you're telling a joke writer is telling a story and then the audience realizes he's actually telling a completely different story. Mm-hmm. And the more you can make that switch where like if it can happen on one word mm-hmm. or two words, mm-hmm. the faster that switch can happen, the more there's like that snap and that snap is your brain going like, oh, shit. And that's a laugh. That's like sudden realization. That's the involuntary thing. Yes. That reinterpretation of what you just heard to mean something completely different than what you thought. Right. And if you can do that in a really fast, forceful way, that's a laugh. That's mm-hmm. why it's involuntary. Mm-hmm. So that's what a twist is. And then we could talk about like how you, what kind of levels there are to that surprise. That's, that would be like the third level uh, of surprise. Like there's a first level of surprise, which is kind of everybody sees it coming. So that's mm-hmm. barely a surprise if, if it is a surprise. Then second level where I think most jokes are, where the comics in the back of the room or the very comedy savvy fans know where the joke is going. They see the punchline before they it see where it's, yeah, exactly. But some of the audience doesn't see it coming for sure. But uh-huh. like the comics in the back are like, I know where this is going. <laughs> then the third level is the one that surprises everybody. And those are those elusive jokes where you're like, man, those jokes that I think when a comic really belly laughs, that's where you know that he there he's surprising everybody or she's surprising everybody mm-hmm. yeah, surprising the artist yeah so the that's the twist and sort of the three levels yes um and the third level also it works with everything like i first heard about it because the co-founder of the harvard college stand-up comic society which was harvard college sucks was the acronym um <laughs> was my buddy dave ingber and he was a guitar comic and so when he was coming up with rhymes it was very easy if the end of the rhyme is walls to go to like balls because that Maybe that second level, some people don't see that it's going to balls, but like most people know it's going to balls. And so he was always pushing for that third rhyme, that rhyme you didn't see coming. Mm-hmm. And once that was in my head, looping it back to stand up, that gave me sort of a rubric for the, the varying levels of a twist. So that's a bad joke versus a good joke. If you don't have a twist, it's a bad joke. It's barely, is it even a joke if it's a bad joke? But there are some jokes that are good, like they get a laugh, but I wouldn't say they're great. 
And that distinguisher to me would be the point. And that's about not wasting your or the audience's time. Like if your joke is surprising, but it hinges on the stereotype that Asians can't drive, that's <laughs> wasting everybody's time. Right? Yes. Like it might surprise you because maybe you didn't see it coming that it was an Asian can't drive joke. But like, we know that stereotype isn't really true. It's not, yeah. And it's not valuable to discuss that. And it's, it's wasting everybody's time. Payoff, and basically. yeah. What's the point of that payoff? So yeah, I like without the point, what's the point? It is pointless. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I came up with a fancy rhyme back in the day for what the point is. Is it new? Is it true? Is it you? Yes. I love that. Love it. And you love should be it. asking yourself of every joke. Is it new? Like, is it adding to the conversation? Is it something that nobody has done before? Because mm-hmm. if it's well-tread ground, then why are you doing it? Like Donald Trump is a really good sort of area of that. Is it new? Like if you're going to talk about Trump, the bar for what is new is going to be very, very high. Mm-hmm. And you really need to ask yourself if you're doing something unique because we could, we've all shit on Trump. It's been done in a million ways already. What's your new spin? Is it worthwhile? Right. It's sort of like, there's clearly a gold mine there, but so many miners have been there before exactly. you. <laughs> there's not Find, much gold left. There, it's there, but my God, the effort. You're gonna you're, you're gonna just, be there for days you're in the gonna, mine. With your with your joke pickaxe, just going at it. And then and people and you'll be like, how about this? Like, that's still a lump of dirt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Still not gold. Absolutely. And then the true part, which is so funny because some jokes aren't true. The true has to be true to you and true to the universe. I remember once seeing a joke, somebody was on stage and was like, What if there were female Jedi's? And as much as that's also just, it became a hack exercise of like periods and like, you know, women shouldn't be Jedi, but there are (laughs) women Jedi. So like before you even get to that layer in the Star Wars universe, there are female Jedis. They exist. So the whole premise is untrue. So he's like, you know, they're all male Jedis, but what is if there was a female Jedi? Skywalker was kind of a little bitch. No, but there are just uh, yeah, 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 for sure. But like this comic spent all this time to try to write a joke about a thing that was not true. So the right. premise is fundamentally flawed that there are only male Jedi. What if there was a fe- the reason there are no female Jedi is because why? I think that the, the amendment I would make to this too is, and I've seen this with strong enough comics, strong enough points of view, with enough confidence on stage, where they can make a thing true for a moment. Like sure. they, they can take a premise that is demonstrably untrue, and they'll be like, "It's always this way," and then, <laughs> and, and it's no, it's not. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you get home and you start to think about that joke, and you go, yeah. "Wait, no. no, no." But for that moment, it can be made to seem true because of the way it's delivered and because of the confidence with which and the speed with which you get to the actual twist in the joke where yeah yeah people, and if you start to hear yourself say the word all that's a pretty good yeah tr- <laughs> uh, key that you're probably not true you're like all blank do this yeah that I, the odds of that being true are very low mm-hmm. however the, for comedic purposes it, it can be a shorthand way of getting to where you want to go i hear like really really strong comics like dave chappelle and louis whatever like they'll i hear them do that um like chris rock definitely is like it's always women are always like right and but his his joke philosophy that he i mean he said it himself is to come up with a thesis that seems unprovable or is untrue and then logic your way into it being true Mm -hmm. so he's Mm -hmm. sort of coming from this angle of finding truth so the premise is sometimes is usually untrue mm-hmm. and his journey is to make it true. Got it. So and he, for him to say that would be on point on brand with that sort of method of writing, but he's going to the truth of it eventually. Yes. Uh, and then the, is it you is like, my theory is always, it takes like five or six years of your comedy journey to just find out the tools of comedy. So like your first five, six years is like, how are you a, com- like how to be a comic? How do you paint? How do you dance? Whatever your art is. Then the next part of the journey is like, how do you use all these tools to actually speak in your own voice? 
And that's a really important component is, does this joke reflect you? Like, is this, is this part of self-expression? Yeah. And that also is like, um, are we wasting time? Like if it doesn't express your point of view and who you are, then you're wasting your time. I want to take a quick moment to just say the links to the articles that Harrison wrote, they will all be in the show notes. So Sweet. yeah. Uh, so if you're curious. And I wrote them a while ago. So yeah. this was like yeah. five year ago. Harrison. Yeah. He didn't, yeah. He didn't know anything about grammar at that point. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then let's talk a little bit about the necktie theory of comedy. Yeah, I started really seriously thinking about comedy in college, like in terms of the mechanics of it. And I read anything I could that had joke theory and you get to like Sigmund Freud and Freud, Freud is weird because, you know, you, when you take psych 101 that you're, you know, at least in my college, the professor was like, just so you know, none of this is real. Like his stuff is based <laughs> on literary characters and like patients he made up. Yeah. But he's very good for a literature angle because so many literature people started using him to analyze their stuff. And then those people end up being writers. So after a certain period, it is sort of incorporated. But he wrote a whole thing on jokes, which is funny because he tries to include jokes as like, see, this is proof that my theory works. But the jokes he includes, they're translated from the German, but are terrible. Like they, <laughs> they don't read very funny. And he's like, look how funny this joke is. Doesn't this prove that my theory is right? And you're like, this joke is terrible. <laughs> Was it ever funny? Was it ever funny? Even in German? I don't know. Um, but, and I guess it was post-Holocaust, so they eliminated all of the good joke tellers as the old joke <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Killed off their funny. Right, exactly. Um, <laughs> let's clean them. Yeah. <laughs> why, did, why are there bad comedy and bad bagels now? Um, but... He, he had this thing of the joke envelope, and I sort of literalized that. It's like, if you think of a joke as a message you're sending to the audience, there is both the envelope, which is what allows it to get to its destination, and that's technique. But the thing that you're mailing, the actual sort of content, the, the gooey center, so to speak, is, the, is joke content, is what a joke is. And that's a much harder discussion of like, what is a joke? What is at its essence? And that speaks to the point to a degree, like the twist in the point, that point. Um, but for me, trying to figure out what is a broad enough theory that encompasses almost all of humor, it's, it, I think there's always an interplay at the heart of every joke between the objective reality and subjective reality. Um, objective being sort of unchangeable. Gravity is objective, at least in terms of, yes, I know gravity would change if you go to a different you planet. you get hit by a bus, it's hard to be uh. like, well, to you. It's, <laughs> right, exactly. it's calculable, right? Like you. If you drop something from the top of a building and I know where the building is, mm -hmm. I can basically predict exactly where it's going to land, how it's going to land. Another what's way to look to at it. it is distance, time and form. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, object, uh, there's objective reality. What is actually there physically there. And then subjective reality, which is like a necktie is the example, right? Mm -hmm. So it's called the necktie theory of comedy because we wear neckties, but there's no reason there's nothing implicitly built into a piece of silk tied in a certain way that makes it masculine exactly. or makes it formal. Mm -hmm. That is only because we as a society made these rules and we agreed to these rules. And then we were born into those rules and we said, okay, I'll abide by those rules. Yes. But and this, and, and this is a particular like significance given all of your act about your voice and masculinity. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because like, this oh, is not a, that, that's a rule you guys made up. Yeah. yeah. And I know I, why do I, these are not, when you treat the subjective as objective, that's where all of the problems begin. And you could talk about silly things like a necktie, but something like racism, where people believe that there's an objective difference between races, when that's a subjective thing, if at all. There's nothing objectively, like if your skin color is different, that doesn't affect your character, your intelligence, anything. That's completely would be a subjective thing yeah. if you believe that. Wait, really? 
(laughs) 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 Right. But I think, so I think that that's the root of all comedy is to take something that is subjective that people are taking objectively and reminding people that actually it's subjective. Mm-hmm. Actually, we don't need to follow these rules because we made the rules so we can change the rules at any time. And for you, this necktie theory comes in where you're just like, you're like, oh, I can peel this away and show you that the necktie only means this because we say it means this, but it doesn't objectively mean that. Yeah, it's weird. Like when people say when you're trying to write a joke and you're stuck, one of the easy ways to do it is like pretend you're an alien visiting this planet for the first time. Mm-hmm. That's most jokes are those perspective, whether yeah. the alien just means like I'm like I, there's uh you know, I worked with Gad Elmaleh a lot. He's a French comic. So a lot of his stuff when he comes to America and he's talking about American things that we do to him, it's very unique. So like he, he was surprised how nice people are at department stores or stores in general, because mm-hmm. in France, that's not the cultural attitude. So it was, a, it was a very easy joke for him to write in the sense that he recognized it immediately that that's an American thing we do. But because I take that for granted as part of my subjective reality of being an American, I wouldn't see that immediately. So we have to practice sort of stepping outside of the groups and boxes that we're in to look at those things. It's, it's be, be an alien and be like, wait, why is that the thing that we do? Why do we do it that way? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. why, why is it that usually the guy is supposed to say, I love you and not the girl or whatever it is. And actually like, I'll put a finer point on it. I just read this a little while ago in um, oh, my favorite, favorite nonfiction book I've read in a long time. Sapiens, Brief History of Humankind. So good. So good. He made a point to remove the homo. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he did. There's a subtext there naming a book Sapiens. <laughs> now with less homo. <laughs> uh, uh, he is one. So he's like, I'm the homo. And we were going to talk specifically, <laughs> yeah, Noah Tobal Harari. Yeah, on the cover, so it's just like, yeah. that's the homo. Like, I'm the homo, so <laughs> it would be redundant to say it twice. Yeah. <laughs> so he breaks it down into three sections. There's objective reality, there's subjective reality, which is you. Like, if you have an imaginary friend, that's all on you. And then there's right? whatever you see when you're on acid. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's intersubjective reality, which is what you're talking about with, like, the mu- agreement between people. Yes, the mutual agreement, the collective agreement for what is true or not. And I lumped that all in. Like you don't have to, I think that's a better, I mean, if you want to parse it out, but for me, it's like, there are things that are objective and there are things that we made a decision to believe. Oh, sorry. Whether it's within ourselves or between other people. I didn't mean to over parse. No, 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 that's great. I've I've been accused of of way over parsing. And to to bring it all back to Emo's bit, religion is a very good example of objective versus subjective Mm -hmm. because people who believe in religion believe God is real as an objective fact. Yes. And for comedians who don't believe in religion, it is their job to be like, by the way, it's actually subjective. <laughs> and what a great way to illustrate that, because the bike theft, this idea that God works in one way or the other as is not really objective. It, religion has made this subjective decision that this is how God works. Because if you pray to God and he doesn't follow through, then you might stop believing that God exists. So we create a different reality where, no, no, you don't. You can just you ask for forgiveness from God. And so he's really sort of putting a lens on two alternate subjective views of this objective reality. Uh huh. And so that's like the meat of the joke. Right. Anytime we're questioning customs, anytime we're questioning, um, I don't know, apparel, like all, all the co- collection of beliefs and, and practices that are a yeah. culture. Or like Larry David, I was, I mean, I, I'm, my, my, we're watching like old curbs and, um, the, you know, there's that scene where Larry David is like sitting to pee. 
And so he's like, <laughs> why do I have to stand to pee? Like, it's much more comfortable to sit. And you go, oh, that's right. Like, yeah, there's nobody forcing you to stand and pee. And if it's more comfortable to sit and pee, then why not? Like, yeah. So it's that kind of thing where you realize, oh, yeah, these things that I just thought were objective reality are really just customs or subjective. That's really the brilliance of Seinfeld and Larry David. Because oh I'll often hear stand up comedians like, uh, you know, that are young that have no appreciation for Seinfeld or what he did. And, and they'll be like, ah, oh, it's just like hacky dated. And it's like, it's not hacky. It's like the reason you think it's hacky is because he started something right, exactly. that people have been ripping off. And, and also, Andy's Elvis impression. People are like, oh, he's another Elvis impression. He was the first guy to nail it. Oh, I didn't know. <laughs> he was he the first did. guy to really popularize it. So when he did an Elvis impression, people were like, holy shit. Huh. Now we see, we see a thousand Elvis impersonators. So yeah. It's not as special. But it's the same thing with Seinfeld. Like when there's, now that there's a thousand of, observational comedian yeah it doesn't seem as special as when you're the first guy to do this yeah and those observations did it are genius like you'll just hear it just be like in the middle of conversation like god he he just like finds these fine-tuned things and breaks them down in a way that like no one's mind works that way pop tarts being in a silver the silver foil mm -hmm. like they're these yeah. valuable items and you're like oh yeah why didn't i take a step back and go like why are they packaged like exactly, that? Exactly, yeah. I like And this, what does that mean? I really like this analysis that like that is the, sort of the job of the observational element in stand up and in comedy in general is to peel this back and remind I love I love this analysis because that is like when when we can take a moment to show what it, we take to be normal and show it to be abnormal or show it to be some sort of put upon aberration. I, I love I And it like gives this. us the opportunity to change mm -hmm. like as people like that's yeah. the power of that tool is being like, oh, maybe the things that I'm taking for granted aren't necessarily objective, like politically even like the way there's so many there's such sides now. And it's because they both feel like what they're seeing is objectively true mm -hmm. and yes. not and they're getting websites and TV channels that reaffirm that belief like yeah this is the objective truth and this it is, is what is happening it is so threatening and so scary for so many people to have their the subjective reality that they take to be true challenged as yeah uh challenged and said no 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 no, no. it could be this way too and people will, they lose it right. over what do you that? mean god might not be real <laughs> i just spent my whole life Living under the assumption that he is objectively real, or the or, oh no, or the flip side. Where <laughs> That's like, what Emo's joke is doing to or, or, or to go the other direction, like so many, so much of uh, George Carlin's material. I love oh, yeah. where he's like, he's like, what human rights? What are you talking about? What rights do you have? And yeah. he, and do we need TSA? If a few of us die, is that worth the sacrifice? Yeah. <laughs> and you kind of get shaken up of like. Is it? <laughs> I don't know. These things that we take to be the way they like. I, I love. I, I like when and and not a lot of people do, but I love one of my favorite things about stand up is to have my my values and thoughts challenged in a fun and humorous way. I love to be like oh, I never would have thought about it like that before. Um, Absolutely, it's so much fun, and that is and that's um, a that's when you know the joke has that greatness. Mm -hmm. Also, the, like, I feel like, you know, you hit the best kind of joke uh -huh. is when anytime somebody encounters that thing again, the first thing you think yes. of is that joke. Oh, like, yes. it's the best an escalator. If you don't think of Mitch Hedberg's escalator joke every time you go on an escalator, like, yeah. that's how, you know, he nailed escalators. Oh, totally. What was, what was his escalator joke again? I don't remember. An escalator can never break. I'm doing a terrible oh, impression. Yeah. And I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> it can never break. It can only temporarily become stairs. <laughs> yeah. This escalator is broken. Sorry for the convenience. That's perfect, Mitch Hedberg. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> if his sweater is dry clean, which <laughs> means it is dirty. <laughs> dry clean only. Like, 
every time you have a sweater that you wear that you haven't washed three times. Yeah. It's great. We talked about necktie. Let's talk about three C's. So three C's. This this is is the envelope now. Actionable stuff. Yeah. So the content, the thing inside of the envelope, which in five years, this metaphor will be entirely meaningless. They're like, what is a a letter? There will always be junk mail. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) That's the only reason you're going to get mail. People are like, stop sending me these postcards. (laughs) So the inside is the content. The outside is how do you deliver it? How do you get, because without the envelope, it's just a really interesting statement. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So if you're just like, you know, escalators, if they break down are technically (laughs) stairs, that's not a funny joke. No, that's the content. But so what is he putting around it? That makes it funny. And so I was trying to figure out what are the really technical things. And I want it to be actionable, as you said. So I came up with three C's um, in each one. If your joke isn't working from a structural standpoint, like if, if you if the content isn't working, that's that's on you. That's on the, what the joke yeah. is about. And that's on everything we just talked about. But if it's just structurally not working, you ask yourself, does it have contrast, compression, and clarity. And I will I will bet you that if your joke is not working, it's because it's failing in at least one of them, if not more. And it's a really good way of like, how do you fix your car if you don't know where the car is broken? Mm-hmm. So this is where you can figure out like, oh, like the contrast isn't right. Okay, and you so can then spin the dials let's, and increase let's, the contrast. But let's, I don't want to, I don't want to gloss over this. I want to take this apart step by step. Yes. Okay. So let's go, let's start with contrast. Contrast is the big one because mm-hmm. in every joke, there are two forces. On a macro level, those two forces are subjective and objective reality. That's not super actionable. Um, but the what? <laughs> but in every joke, there's force A and force B, and they're going to fight each other. So uh, and you, when we go through my bits, I'll try to point out where the A and the B is. It Great. doesn't mean there's just there could be multiple levels. Like I have a joke where I'm it's a joke about Harry Potter and the Bible mm-hmm. that I did on Last Comic Standing. It's mm-hmm. it's a joke where it's me versus a guy on the subway. That's a, like literally I'm A and he's B, but I represent a secular point of view and he represents a religious point of view. So there's multiple levels within that, but A and B are always going to fight each other. And if they're not super different from each other, then the joke is not going to be funny. There's a there's an ideal gap between A and B, yes. which you can call the ideal joking distance mm-hmm. if you want to get scientific about it. But there's two analogies. I'll try to do them really quick. There's the cliff jumping analogy, which I got from Rick Jenkins at the comedy studio. And then the murder mystery analogy, which I sort of fell upon that I think is a little bit clear, but Rick initially explained it as every joke is a jump across a gap. And that's the gap between A and B. And if the gap is too short, it's like, why do we do it? What, what a waste of time. Like if it's, that, if it's not a big distance, not worth the risk. If it's wait, too wait, far. Wait, 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 before we go any further, yeah. I just want to, I want to get even more granular. What yeah. do you mean by jump? What do you mean by distance in this case? So the distance between A and B, like mm-hmm. the difference between force A and force B, whatever they might be. Are we talking first story, second story here, or are we talking between it's subjective and, and objective reality? There's different layers of it. Okay. But usually there's an actionable layer. Like mm-hmm. in my joke, it's clearly like me versus this person. So I, he quotes the Bible at me and I quote Harry Potter back at him. Got it. So it's the difference between those two books mm-hmm. and those two philosophies. Mm-hmm. So there's a point where they're too close, like apples to apples or even apples and oranges are too close. They're both fruit. Mm -hmm. Then there's too far apart where the gap is so far that the two forces you're trying to connect or put together are so far apart, you just fall in the gap and die. And then there's the ideal joking distance. The better way to think about it, that's Rick's thing. I think it's great. But the way that I've been thinking about it is like a murder mystery. I think this makes it clear, which is what makes a bad murder mystery. Again, we're talking about surprise, right? And a, a good joke surprises you going forward, like the timeline going forward. So in the telling of it, it's not obvious. But then in hindsight, you should be like, oh shit, all the clues were there the whole time. 
That's a good mystery mm-hmm. where you can't solve it, mm-hmm. but when it is solved, you're like, shit, I should have seen, I should have seen these it, yeah. things. So a good mystery, a bad mystery can be either it's very easy to solve, so you solve it before you get to the end, yeah. where you're like, oh, the butler did it. It's definitely the butler. Oh, the butler did do it. Well, this was a waste of an hour and a half. Then there's that other murder mystery where like, you get to the end and you realize they haven't shown you all the clues. They haven't played fair. Yeah. We've all yes. seen that. We're like... Well, I could, maybe could have solved it if you told me there was a bag of sugar over there. But you never <laughs> yeah. showed it to me. Right. And the detective somehow knew about it. And he brings it up. Well, I saw the bag of sugar walking in. But there's no frame in the movie. It's like when people that- hate when it's like, and it was all a dream the whole time. It's like, what's the well, clue? Fucking no payoff at all. Right. Yeah. Or or like it's a like anything that ends with a deus ex machina where like they, they don't have a way to resolve whatever plot it yeah. is. And then so now some magical force or the hand of God yeah. or whatever comes in and boom. Saves the day, and or you're like, worst. "Fuck you!" Like, <laughs> the worst is like if you're doing a murder mystery, just to stick with that. Yeah, yeah. If you're doing the murder mystery, if there are three suspects, and you're like, hmm, "Which one did it?" And you're like, "Oh, I think it's this guy." No, maybe it's that guy. And you're like going back and forth, and then the solution is there was a a fourth guy they never showed. <laughs> yeah, and you're like, "Well, that's what the fuck? <laughs> that's not a good mystery." Yeah. <laughs> you gave me three suspects, and it turns out it was the brother of one of the suspects. Uh, well, that's bullshit. Yeah, it's not a the mystery. Prestige that's is an a better unsolvable. Example. <laughs> yeah, the prestige is that a fair mystery where it turns out there's a there's a twin. Yeah, that was. It, they give you just enough where you feel like it's almost fair, like a good twist mm-hmm. movie, like um, the Sixth Sense. Perfect example. Oh, amazing. Every clue is there. That is not an unfair mystery, uh-huh. but it knocks you on your ass the first time you realize what's happening. Yes. Yeah. That's a, the usual suspects. Is spoiler a good alert. Spo- spoiler alert. In the sixth sense, the butler did it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 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 The usual <laughs> the suspects. You're like, where do you, you don't see that thing coming. Yeah. Yeah. But all of the clues are there because yes. they keep showing you that shot of yes. the board behind yes. it. Yes. Yes. That one's a little bit less fair because they kind of zoom in on the cup. And yeah. You're like, oh, well, I didn't, I didn't get that zoom in. <laughs> But Sixth Sense, let's view that as a perfect example. Every clue is there, but you don't see it until it's too late. Mm-hmm. That's the ideal joking distance. That right. Refer- and surprise, by the way, falls under contrast because a contrast of expectations is a surprise. So there's a contrast sometimes. The force, a- some of the things that are being contrasted in a joke might be how the- what you think the comedian is going to say and then what he actually says. Classic, like, misdirect. It's like Mike Birbiglia when he does the thing with the- bringing the mattress in and the... What I should have said was nothing. Yes. Oh, yes. You expect him to say something. What I should have said was, and then he was going to say a thing. So when he says nothing, it's a big contrast of where you thought that was going and where it ends up going. Got it. I want to get to compression and I want to get to clarity. but I Those are really easy to explain. I can do those really quick. Okay. Because those are the simpler ones. Okay. Contrast I can talk for hours about because that really is the driving force. And if you read a lot of these like joke theory things, inevitably they're really just saying contrast in a different way. Um, there's always, you know, they say incongruity, which is contrast in a, in a, in a different way. Compression is just about that Helen Vendler thing of jamming as much as you can. Like word economy. Word economy. Yeah. And it's about literally I, I, my method is I keep cutting the joke down until it breaks. And then I go one step back. Yes. Ooh, it's a really easy trick. You okay. just keep cutting, cutting, cutting. And then all of a sudden you're like, wait, they stop laughing. You're like, yeah. oh, cause I, I eliminated something very... I, something important just got sliced out. Uh-huh. Yes, yeah. So any joke should shrink over time. It's like when you boil something and it like gets more and more concentrated. It should feel like that. So that's compression. The old saw is if, like, if somebody wasn't paying attention to your set and they go, do you have any advice? You could always say you should work, you know, shorten your premises. Because inevitably <laughs> there's at least one joke where the premise can be cut down. <laughs> yeah. Cutting your premises is always a thing you can do. Yeah. So that's compression. If your joke is failing, that's an easy thing to be like, oh, maybe this is too long. Then the final one is clarity, 
which is a little bit more nebulous. And it's just about the being clear, like is what you're trying to say, what is actually being said. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you write a joke and it makes sense to you because you're the one that wrote it. So you have a lot of extra subtext the audience doesn't have. Yes. Right. So it's about figuring out is the message that I'm delivering actually being delivered correctly to the person that it's supposed to be delivered to. Like is it, that, that really goes back to that envelope of like, I know where it's supposed to go and what it's supposed to be. Are they getting exactly what I'm right. doing? Or are they getting a ripped in half envelope by the time it gets through the mail yeah. services? And sometimes <laughs> that's where those, a joke can go horribly wrong where like if you're trying to do a very hard topic, like, yeah. you know, like school shooting, that's going to be really hard because you better if your if your message is like in favor of the victim and not the victimizer, uh -huh. it better be very clear who you're making fun of. Yeah, because if it sounds like you're making fun of the victim and not the victimizer, that joke is going to go down real bad. Yeah, right? or like you can you can start off and make it seem like it's going to go sure. like the wrong direction, and that can be your twist that you turn. You, oh nope, I'm not making I'm making I'm not making fun of them. I'm making fun of this other uh, thing. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like a Holocaust joke yeah. is a good example because like people are like you shouldn't make a Holocaust joke. You're like fuck you. If my joke is making fun of Nazis, they deserve as much ridicule as possible. Like, yeah. The reason the producers is funny is because it's very clear. That he's not on the Nazi side. <laughs> yeah, he's yeah. very clearly making fun of Hitler and and knocking him down a peg yeah. by putting him in this situation. This is clearly an anti-Hitler piece. If that clarity is not there and you're not sure if it's an anti-Hitler piece, because there's a lot of Nazis dancing in a swastika. Uh, so if it's not clear whose side you're on, yeah. that joke can go very wrong very I, quickly. I'm sorry, I feel so stupid even saying this, but like, who who was Hitler? <laughs> no. Oh, don't worry about it. <laughs> <He's>, uh, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> They're going to reboot him soon <laughs> It'll be a gritty reboot oh, God. Okay, we have clarity, we have contrast, we have compression yes. I think now is a great time Yeah, for now let's start applying this yes, to stuff yes, So let's, uh, let's listen to some Harrison Greenbaum oh, comedy boy. So this is Harrison Greenbaum from America's Got Talent 2017 And we'll just play it Yeah, so I decided to be a comedian senior year of college. That's when I had to tell my parents who were paying for college. <laughs> like, I had to sit them down. I was like, Mom, Dad, I have something very difficult to tell you. And they were like, you're gay. <laughs> I was like, no, I want to be a comedian. <laughs> and they were like, we'd rather you be gay. Like, is that, is that still an option on the table? Because we'll go to the parade. We will go. <laughs> I get it. People think I'm gay because uh, every single thing about me. <laughs> it's weird when you're not gay, but people think you're gay. People will argue with you about you, right? Like, you know what I'm talking about. Like, I'm pointing to Simon. Right? Simon Cowell. Same boat. Right? They don't do that with their other preferences. I've never been at a deli. They're just like, hey, do you want cucumber? I'm like, nah. They're like, mm, you want cucumber. <laughs> You look and sound like you love cucumber. No, I don't. We're going to put it on your sandwich. You're lying to yourself. And now that joke, I don't say you're lying to yourself. I say, uh, I mean, we're going to put it on your sandwich unsliced. Yes. Yes. We've heard that it, version. Which is a much well. stronger it's tag. Such a great yeah. tag. Yeah. Because you don't, you don't cut up penises. Uh, right. right? I right. get it. I get it. Well, also, when we're talking about <laughs> ideal joking distance, so the point of the joke is trying to expect the frustration of people making assumptions about you and then just acting on them without even asking. So, like, you wouldn't just assume somebody likes cucumber and just throw it on their sandwich. Mm -hmm. And so, obviously, the broader point is, like, then why assume somebody's sexuality? Like, just ask them or, like, that's not an assumption. That's not fair to make. And then figuring out what's the analogy, right? So how do you express that? 
Cucumber is great. Like I was actually at Magic Camp, uh, which I still am a counselor at. I love going to Magic Camp. Not gay at all. Not gay at all. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Well, I always joke that like, you know, those Christian camps where they make, they try to make gay kids straight. Conversion. We're the exact opposite. <laughs> it's a Jewish camp where straights become gay. Um, no, but uh, there are a lot of Jews there. But um, <laughs> I was actually talking to uh, one of the counselors and he mentioned cucumber. Uh, it wasn't exactly the joke, but it was like very close. And that's the perfect joke distance when we're talking about contrast, because there's clearly a link between gay stuff and cucumber. It's very phallic, but it's far enough that it's worth the journey. Mm -hmm, And so it it really hits that sweet spot. Um, The unsliced, I think, is a a fun economical, like compression-y way of really driving that thing home. also creating a visual. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Like, if you don't get it then, now you get it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. The very beginning, too, is a very obvious contrast between, like, a coming out thing with your parents and the contrast between what it, what it normally goes down is where you sit your parents down and you go, I'm gay. And then they say, Oh my God. And here it's them saying it. So boom, that's already the first difference. And then it's like, no, no, I just want to, I want to be a comedian and that's worse to them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which that joke, I think over time might not necessarily age as well because hopefully it becomes easier and easier for people to come out. So like, who cares? But then there's like, we'll go to the parade. Is that like extra suggestion? Like we'll do whatever it takes. Yeah, yeah. For like, you to do just not be, be a, comedian. Not a comedian. Please, yes. please, 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 please. Yeah. Uh, and it's good too because it's also it's on the right side in terms of the point. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about clarity. It's also on the right side of that of history. Like it's on the right side of the issue, which is like, <laughs> of course, being a comedian is throwing your life away. Maybe that that's hard, that's a money thing and a survival yeah. thing. But being gay is not throwing your life away. And yeah, we want right. the more jokes that. Make it like, yeah, being gay, who gives a shit? Yeah. So my parents are the winners in that joke for sure. Can I, yes, can, I, can I tell you a tag? It just came to mind. Yeah. Look, we, we paid for college. The least we can do is pay for your grinder subscription. Come on. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the interesting thing, too, is like as we're dissecting the compression, which also it's very short and economical, uh-huh. and slicing so... out every word. They cut one line out. They made it more economically than they think. Because I, I say, I do the first part of the joke and I go, I'm not gay. I get it. People think I'm gay because of, and yeah. obviously the contrast is there. They expect me to list anything specific and I just go literally everything about yeah, me. Yes. Uh-huh. Boom. Big pops. So that's uh-huh. a lot of contrast uh-huh. and compression right. working together. And they took out a piece that set up the contrast. Yeah. Cause they, they, they mm-hmm. took out the part where they said, I'm not gay, mm-hmm. but so the joke still works because there is a lot of, a lot of contrast going on in that joke and all the C's yeah. are firing at all cylinders. So you can take one of the pistons out and it'll still work. I wanted to put a finer point on contrast. If it, there's contrast where things are just not the same, more and more dissimilar, but if you can get it to the point where it's exact opposite, then you have irony. And if you can keep working on it until you make them opposites like that, that's what they took away from you. They took right. away the irony. Exactly. People could kind of infer it. It can be like, well, he is implying that he's not gay, but when you flat out state it, and then the very next thing is everything about me. It's a much better contrast. Yeah, 100%. It's irony at that point. At that point, I'm leaning on the fact that, like, I'm insinuating that I'm not gay. So it's getting in their head. Like, Uh it's clear what the insinuation is. But in terms of that, like, speed, I'm always talking about processing speed. Because the audience has a certain processing speed. Go on. I'm, I really want to hear um, this. Sometimes people are like, will the audience get it? Yes. But also, how fast will they get it? With the speed that I'm delivering every punchline, mm-hmm. if I want to laugh on every punchline, they better process and produce a laugh before I'm on the next joke. Mm-hmm. And so if it takes them too long to process that joke, I'm going to lose that laugh unless I know to wait and like literally pad it out so that they have that processing yeah, time. Yeah, elongate. So sometimes I have to make things more explicit because I need the processing time on the average audience member to be fast because I'm working very fast. You know, uh, we, we talk about that in, in a variety of other episodes where it's um, there are there are thinkers 
I need to know which one of your jokes are thinkers. Yeah, and, and then so, there are, yeah. there are jokes that are that are so not thinkers that you need to get to it fast enough that you get there first. Well, no, but that's a second level joke. The reason they're getting there first is because it's second level. Mm. You shouldn't even do that joke. Get to a third level <laughs> joke. So they can, if you're the only way that you're beating the audience to a punchline is through pure speed. It's not a good joke. <laughs> you should be surprising them because it's legitimately surprising, not because you're faster, like you're racing them to the punchline. Because I talk yeah. fast. You should never be, <laughs> yeah, you should never be racing them to the punchline. No, um, but like a good example of uh, the processing speed is I used to say, what? why is this comedy so good? Just so fast. He's so fast. <laughs> he's so, he's yeah, just, but before I can even think about it, he's already at a punchline. <laughs> and he cuts out syllables. It's like incredible. The analogies with sex were like, yeah, he comes so fast. <laughs> wow, I'm That's so impressed. It's impressive, I guess, how fast he comes, but nobody nobody wants that guy. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, so it's like that. But with the processing speed, with the original version of the joke, I actually used to say subway. So I would say, um, uh, I'd go to the subway and the cucumber thing. So I was implying a subway sandwich shop, the subway chain. Mm -hmm. But especially when I'm in New York, there's a brief second where they go, wait, does he mean the subway, the train or the subway, mm. the sandwich? And that's increasing their processing time. It's, it's making it harder for them to process and get to where I need them to get. So I can eliminate that and make them process it faster by just saying deli. That means only one thing. Deli means one thing. Yeah. Subway means two things. So I'm immediately hundred percent increasing the processing speed. processing speed. I love analyzing it that way. How much processing am I making them do? That goes to the clarity point. Uh -huh. Specific words are more like if you say diet Coke, that means something very different than saying soda. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. will help with the processing. If you're describing a girl and she drinks diet Coke, mm -hmm. that's a different girl than if you say she's just drinking soda. Yeah, it's a huge and difference. It's a very different image. It right. builds a different character. It's both clarity and compression and like how much information can you contain? If somebody's drinking kombucha, like besides it being a funny word, that's telling you so much about that character in such a small space. And everybody's going to get there real fast. When you say he had a bun in his hair and he was sipping kombucha, God, I got it. I, yeah. I need no more. I don't even know if I need the hair bun. I might just need the kombucha. Like that's yeah. all I need. We have another clip just to set it up because it, it is cool. Is that I got a, a tweet from a college filmmaker, a student filmmaker. And she was like, I was inspired by your standup and this film was inspired by your work. And so I watch it and she had just taken my jokes and put them in the mouths of the characters and then took full writing credit without acknowledging <laughs> so me at all. Ridiculous. So I was a little bit upset. She's a college filmmaker. I didn't like, I don't be like, how dare you? I was like, if she thought this it was going to upset you, if she would she never send it. Yeah, right, right. So yeah. I was like, I am flattered just so you know, because you're entering this entertainment space. This is not how artists actually function. If you, you don't just yeah. take somebody's work that way. Like yeah. you can ask for in permission. This way, it, is, it is unlike your entire academic career. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, you, but if you quote, there's a difference between quoting from somebody, from know, somebody and I then know. putting attribution. Totally. Then what she did, which is she just passed off somebody else's work as her own. Yeah. That's so not to beat her up. She's a student filmmaker. I don't want to like beat her up too much. I won't say her name, but this is the clip of the actor who, by the way, the other actor doesn't do this. The other actor just does my script exactly the way it is. Right. This guy decided he's going to riff on deal. it. <laughs> He's just going to add his own little uh, bits of biz. Okay. So this is taking a joke that works really well and then ruining it on all three levels of scene. <laughs> so you're going to see him ruin the contrast. 
He's going to decompress it and make it way longer than it needs to be. And the clarity is going to be completely out the window. So you're going to hear the exact same joke, completely unfunny, <laughs> as told by a student actor who right. does not have and, much and comedy this experience. Is, and this is studentfilmripoff.mov from Dropbox. <laughs> that, is, that is how I saved it. <laughs> there. You can find it. That <laughs> yeah, you can't Google that. Yeah. I forgot. I Sometimes I like to make it easy to search for things. <laughs> but you can see it at Sundance. Right. It's, 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 it's gone. It's, it's, it's gone. gone. Very well. Got all the leaves. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> all the leaves. Yeah. All right, let's go. And if you're trying to picture it, picture a guy who looks a little bit like me talking to a guy that looks like a Mickey Rourke ripoff uh. in a Harvard sweatshirt. Oh, my and God. he's standing in front of a Harvard background. It's it's really interesting because something that you won't you that the, the a listener won't know by just listening to it is that this is the point in the film where he's like, I want to show you that I'm a good comedian, so I'm going to do a good joke for you and make you laugh. <laughs> But the actor is not laughing. We, the laughter you hear from the father at the end is ADR'd over him just smiling. So the actor himself wasn't laughing and they made it sound like he was laughing in post. You think I'm gay. Fair enough, fair enough, I get that from a lot of people. Um, it's weird when you're not gay but people think you're gay so they argue with you about your sexuality like you've got this Big, deep, dark secret that they want you to admit. That should all be subtext. Uh, <laughs> it's the subtle hints that I could live without, though. You know, uh, for example, I walked into a subway the other day, and the lady asked me if I wanted cucumber on my sandwich. And, you know, I, I'm not really a fan, so I said, no, thank you. And she looked at me, and she goes, are you sure? You seem like the kind of guy who loves cucumber. And admittedly, I was a little caught off guard. I didn't know what I was supposed to do. Was I supposed to argue with it or just let it slide? I was kind of confused. She didn't know who I was. Why would she say something like... I guess in retrospect, I did walk in there and say I need a foot long in my mouth right now, so... Oh, my God. <laughs> that doesn't mean anything, though, right? <laughs> oh, I've never, I, just to be clear, I've never at any point in doing that joke used that tech. <laughs> that is completely the student film, uh, either actor or filmmaker, adding that. I'm so sorry accord. that happened. So, so, so I'm confused. What's, what's wrong with that? Right. <laughs> he made it better. Uh, yeah. I really feel like he nails necktie theory. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, let's, let's, let's break it down. So, like, <laughs> so obviously compression. Uh, oh, my God. The There's so many things that are implied, that are already given that you don't need to say. Like, especially when you're doing a dialogue. Like, you don't need to say, and then she said. <laughs> you can just do it. I've never walked into a deli and I was like, hey, either, you know, do you want cucumber? And I'm like, no. I'm like, mm, you want cucumber. I didn't notice how fast that dialogue goes back and forth. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. That is a very slow version of that. And yeah. he's riffing in places that are not necessary. Right. <laughs> and then contrast-wise, she has a gay voice. Yeah. It, uh. That is super unclear. And the contrast is erased entirely. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. I think he's trying to do a girl voice, but it comes off as like gay voice. Like, <laughs> it's very weird. It's a bizarre choice that makes things very unclear. Right. And why exactly is he talking to his dad about it in the first place? Well, in, in the setup of the film, he's, okay. he's like, let me prove to you that I am funny. And so I'm going to do one of the jokes from my oh, act for God. you. And then he, and the, and the dad laughs. <laughs> oh, that ends with the dad laughing? Oh. Well, it ends with the dad smiling and they've ADR'd over him just smiling, going like, ha ha ha. <laughs> it's like a samurai movie. It doesn't match the mouth. So so it is funny, actually. Yes, in all the wrong ways. He kills. He kills. God damn. All right, that's great. Uh, it made yes. my heart hurt. <laughs> 
So we have one more thing I want to cover, and that is resonance. Yeah. Resonance. Joke resonance. That theory, in, in all honesty, comes from me being a little bit bitchy because mm. I was watching a lot of comics at that time that I wrote this blog post who were just getting laughs from just mentioning a thing we all remembered. It's like, do you guys remember this thing from the 80s? Or like, mm -hmm. remember this thing? And then the audience would laugh and then they would move on to the next bit. There was no twist. Right. Uh, and no point really. Is there a point to just reminding somebody without any, like, <laughs> if you're going to remind me of a thing, and I think we'll get that to later. Where I do a joke about Tetris and it, is start, it starts off as a, you guys remember the game Tetris, kind of. That's sort of inherited in that bit. But then it goes on to make some points. Right. And we'll play that in a little bit. So there's three levels of resonance. That nostalgia memory thing. Mm -hmm. And it's the, uh, oh, yeah, I used to do that. So sometimes the laughter is their way of communicating to you, I I'm vibing with you, I that this is resonating with me. I remember reading a, a study about laughter where it that's actually about 70 to 80% of all laughter is just that marker of, I like you, everything's okay, everything's fine. Like, oh, I had a sandwich a minute ago. <laughs> oh, cool. Well, it's a, it's yeah, a I, social thing of like, yes. if you laugh at somebody, that makes them feel good. Right. Yeah. It's a good thing to give to somebody. There's a study where they basically filmed just friends talking to each other and then analyzed everything that got a laugh. Right. And none of it's funny. Like, it's all inside jokes, which... Mm -hmm. By the way, is also a technique is that's why callbacks work so well. Oh, and one thing I'm going to duck out of resonance for one second, because this is something that excites me. I can explain the rule of three using the three C's. I have oh, an cool. actually explanation for why three is the number. Cause people always said that, you know, it's the magical rule of three, right? Everything is funnier in threes. Yes. Yeah. But nobody could explain to me scientifically or mathematically why three is funnier. Mm -hmm. And I figured it out. Okay. I think Okay. it combines compression and contrast. So three is a magical number oh, yeah, yeah, because yeah. it is the smallest number, that's compression, required to set up and break a pattern, yes, which is contrast. So if you go uh -huh. red, blue, the blue doesn't mean anything because we don't know what the pattern is. But if you go red, red, blue, then we know blue is breaking the pattern. Yes. So that's where that three thing comes from. Mm -hmm. But back to the residents. Oh, yeah. So that, that was the whole thing of like the callbacks. And callbacks are also structurally a good way of causing interrelationships yeah. that also might follow the three Cs. But uh, there's the residents of, of nostalgia. There's a the residents of feeling, which is where I guess most good jokes kind of lie in the sense of like, I feel that way too. That does make me feel that way. And these are very base level, but you're like, wow, I, I do hate losing my socks in the wash. Mm -hmm. It was like a Seinfeld example. Mm -hmm. And then there's the political sort of resonance of opinion or thought, which is not, yes, I also feel that way. Like literally feel that way emotionally. It's yes, I agree with you. I yeah. do think that person is good or bad. And those are the clapter laughs sometimes where it's yeah. like if you if you're in an audience of all liberals and you and you were like Donald Trump is bad, they might just laugh as a way to be like, I'm on your team. Exactly. Or they might boo to say, I'm not on your team, depending mm -hmm. where you are in the country. Yeah. That response is a resonance of of agreement. Or, so you got to have all of it all in a mishmash kind of. Oh, no, I don't think so. I think it was you just a way of so? looking at where they things resonate. No, no, I don't mean per joke. I mean, like an, a good comic would probably include all uh, maybe i'm just thinking, i don't think you have to you no, don't I, want everything to be a joke that they're like i agree i agree i, I think agree. if your joke only has one or three if your if your joke is only funny because of the nostalgia yeah or only because it agrees it aligns with somebody's political opinion or opinion then that's that might be not the right laugh yeah yeah it's a way of looking at the laughs that you're getting and being really honest with yourself i mean like are they applauding because they just agree with me are they just applauding because they you're too also miss their... having a Game Boy? Yeah. Those aren't good jokes. Mm -hmm. So agree. you want that, that other resonance, that resonance of like, wow, 
you've reminded me of this thing. What well, we shared this thing. Sometimes the laughter is really is that agreement. We're talking about subjective, objective reality. Uh-huh. It's the, the definition of art includes saying something universal within the narrow constraints of the art form. There's more to that definition, but the important parts are the it's narrowly constraining what art is. Like do, you have to do certain things to be a joke. Does let me ask you a question yeah. though. Do you think you must have any of these kinds of resonance for it to work? So this is the idea of like the narrow versus the universal. So you want to say something where somebody in the audience goes, I thought I was the only one, but it turns out we all feel this way. Had that experience, I either feel that way or I agree with that. Yeah, there is a moment where you realize you're part of the human team. Uh-huh. And I think all good jokes kind of do that. You realize yeah. this thought that I had, especially those taboo comics, right? If you have a comic who's like, I did have that really, I had that really awful thought. Yeah. And I thought I was the only one and I was too embarrassed to share it. But now that he's sharing it and we're all laughing, I realize we all have this horrible thought. Exactly. And so that there is that level, that resonance thing. And that it's, it's an interesting thing to have in your toolkit of like, like sometimes I'll say something on stage and realize I am the only one who feels that way. <laughs> it's yeah. not resonating. And so that joke is not going to work. And to be clear, just because we have the bigger example of the joke envelope and the joke letter, this is, we're talking about the letter now, not the, this is less of a structural thing yeah. and more of what, what is it, the letter back to the joke. I want to explore this a little bit because I can think of scenarios where what's working in the joke is that you see why that person feels or believes a certain way, but you don't share that. You don't resonate with it, but you get why they are that way. And it's funny in that context. Like, it might not resonate with you when, like, Louis's bit where he's in the post office and he's hating on everybody. It's a whole thing. You might not feel that way at all. I think the reason that joke works is because everybody has had that experience. Okay. Of hating, sitting mm -hmm. silently hating everybody. Or, Or there's a comedian in New York who talks a lot about bodybuilding. And it's funny, I've watched that kill, even the people who've never done any bodybuilding, they don't, they're not even necessarily like, uh, they don't have to be health oriented at all, but watching him be really obsessed, I guess maybe it's resonating with his obsession. Right, you don't have to be, it's, it's you saying like, wow, I'm not a bodybuilder, but I have the same feelings about th- this other thing, the thing that I'm obsessed with. Yes. Mm-hmm. It always is going to resonate. There's always an agreement. Got it. It doesn't have to be directly relatable right but it can be in the essence of it like oh i get what it's like to be obsessed with something i might have ever been angry in a post office but i've been angry in a macy's whatever like yes but it's the it's the core that universal idea and that's the narrow constraints versus universal idea is that you can be very specific and very narrow and be talking about bodybuilding and yet it applies to a ventriloquist because if they're both obsessive about a thing Mm mm-hmm and so even mm. though it sounds narrow, it actually is universally applicable. That's what resonance does, is it ties that kind of thing together. Mm. Okay. All right, cool. Thanks for indulging me on that. Yeah. Come on. Let's talk about sex. Let's uh, introduce Harrison Greenbaum. All right. Uh, <laughs> I've been here the whole time. <laughs> the other Harrison. Uh, <laughs> who's been here? Has it been that student actor the whole time? <laughs> that is. Oh, no. <laughs> Harrison Greenbaum. Uh, you're a New York-based comic. You've been featured. I'm just going to quickly go through a few things here. Uh, so America's Got Talent, Last Comic Standing, Access TV's wow, Gotham. He's been eliminated Live. from so many reality competitions. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 just, you can see it's all on, you can see him fail online uh, left and right. <laughs> the list of things that you've done, it goes on and on. On top of all of it, like, wasn't there something like you? I did a great job writing my own bio. <laughs> yeah, I, was, I saw I read, I was like, holy shit. Uh, Andy Kaufman Award. Yeah, Andy Kaufman Award. Um, Let's see. Uh, and then also you have, uh, on top of all of it, you're a magician oh, as yeah. well. Yeah. 
and you give talks to magicians to tell them why they're horrible at comedy? Well, magicians. So the funny thing is, they are a magic convention. So there aren't any stand up conventions, but magic conventions, you go and it's like, I'm going to one next week. I'm super pumped about it. And it's literally like they have a show every night and there are lectures and workshops because you can teach. There's so many things about the craft that you can teach. Like, you're like, let me show you this thing I can do with cards. Uh, my lecture is called You Are All Terrible. Um, <laughs> and it's based on my column for a genie, which is like the uh, a magic magazine. Yeah. And it came from this thing of like, so many magicians are terrible. <laughs> like magic isn't terrible. I love magic, but magicians are terrible because they weren't creating art. They were yeah. going to a magic store, buying a DVD, and they're just performing the exact thing they saw on the DVD. That's mm -hmm. not art. And as a comedian, I was, it was so easy for me to recognize, talking about being an alien, yeah. it was so easy for me to recognize that the, the art creation process and magic is just inherently broken. So I go into these magic conventions and I, it's called, the first slide is you are all terrible. And I go through how to create art and it's, it's the idea comes first and then you figure out how you're going to say it. Like, I want to talk about this. How do I say it? Not, I had this really cool card trick. How do I jam a presentation around it? So it's not exactly the same as the thousand other people doing this exact same trick. Mm -hmm. So I talk about that briefly and then I go into comedy because most of these guys will refer to themselves as comedy magicians or comedians and magicians. And they've never written a joke ever, literally ever. They've never actually sat down and they written a joke. They just take yours. Yes. hundred <laughs> percent. Or they're all doing stock jokes when it comes to like, is it new? Is it you? Is it true? A stock joke fails on every one of those things. It's not new. You didn't write it. It's not about you. And is it true? Probably not. It's a stock dumb joke. Like yeah. a classic example is where they go, let me have your hand. Oh no, the clean one. Huh? Oh, that's and then so when you bad. put the other hand out, you go, oh, I guess that was the clean one. Oh no. Yucca, yucca. And it kills. That's the problem oh, is it, God. it kills. They get positive so they feedback. They get positive feedback. And basically all of magic is a bunch of people who are Beatles cover bands, uh, <laughs> but nobody knows the Beatle, the magic version of the Beatles. Yeah. So they get to act like they're fucking John Lennon. I, it's a bunch of Beatles cover bands acting like they're the actual Beatles. That's super funny. May I ask you, um, are you popular with these people? <laughs> the funny thing is I, in a weird way I am because I come in and I, I get to be the guy who's like, it's so unique to have this point of view, uh -huh. but it's really me just taking all the lessons I learned from stand up that, you guys would all have the same lessons. Exactly. And just me going there and being like, let's apply these lessons from stand-up and be better artists. When I do my magic act, especially at a convention or, or for other magicians, it it looks so unique and different because I'm just doing stand-up. I'm doing stand-up. I have real jokes about real things uh. in my magic act. And what other magic act has that? Like legitimately real jokes, that's part one, about real things. Like I have a trick that's political. How many dumb that guys have you cool. seen make a political statement yeah nobody does it it's insane you're an art form but you can't make a political statement there's no other art form that doesn't have a political wing you're right it's uh, crazy yeah even finger painting guernica you, go to, you see <laughs> picasso's painting about the spanish civil war yeah it's a very political painting like i really love this this definition of art it's in in opposition to science like that uh science is the projection of the world onto the consciousness and art is the projection of the consciousness upon the world and mm, interesting. It, Although it, I like to blend them because I feel like you can have a very scientific yes, or mathematical they're not, approach. They're not exclusive yeah. by any means. Obviously, look what we're doing here today. If science, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But if science is just the scientific method, right? The idea that you have a theory, you test it, and it's up, you know, so you, you trace science back to the enlightenment. Then comedy is science because that, that's the method that you, you, it's, 
You, I, have, I, I, I do the joke. I take the data. I refine the joke. So, so, it's, so just, it's a scientific process. Okay, got it. Yeah, I get it. Different for, ends, so, for sure. So the second half of what I was going to say. Now I'm over-parsing <laughs> you. I apologize. <laughs> yeah. No over-parsing. All right. The second half is that if, if you accept that for a moment, that art is the projection of the consciousness upon the world, mm. what's the problem with this is it's ideally it's the projection of your, your consciousness, consciousness. <laughs> not yeah. someone else's. And that's what I talk to them about. I'm just like, you're doing somebody else's material. So how, why? It's a waste of time for everybody. You're not an artist if it's not your thing. Because the, the other one of the other definitions no. of art, which is Darren Brown, who's a magician, um, he talks about how art is always in dialogue with past art. Art only exists in conversation with the art that comes before it. Absolutely. So Jackson Pollock only exists because the art before it is very formal. And Andy, Andy Warhol only exists because the guy right before him is Jackson Pollock. So you're always having a dialogue where you either say, I'm going to continue your thought and take it another way. Or I disagree with you entirely. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the opposite. If you are just repeating what somebody said, that's never a dialogue. You can't have a conversation Absolutely. if you're just repeating back what the other guy said. So it really just fails that test. You can't have a conversation with someone if they're just repeating back. I mean, it just fails that test. Exactly. You just can't have a conversation exactly. if you you're repeating back. <laughs> uh, My favorite. Four thing hours ever. later. <laughs> <laughs> Point made. Uh, and and. Uh, <laughs> that was really funny. <laughs> Let's talk process a little bit, mm -hmm. and then we're gonna dig in. We're gonna play some more bits. Yeah, I want to. I want to read one of, one of your questions, Harrison. Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> Harrison Tweed. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm just other... asking myself oh, questions. Yeah. I know, right? <laughs> uh, we asked you. For, we that was the pre-interview process. What are the questions you'd like us to ask you? <laughs> um, uh, so. Let's take you through your process a little bit. So you've had, you have an idea. You're applying these principles. How do you apply the principles specifically to your joke writing process? Come on. Let's talk about sex. Coming up in part two of Joke Theory with Harrison Greenbaum, we dive into his writing process and analyze his material through his own joke theories. It's awesome. Enjoy the wait. And thank you to our Patreon patrons. We love you. And we have a special episode coming soon in which we analyze some of the jokes you guys asked us to dissect. For the rest of you, if we've entertained you or you've grown as an artist with us, please consider supporting us financially. I currently make negative $23,000 a year in comedy. So if you could spare maybe the price of one New York open mic a month, like five bucks, less than a latte, it would go a long way toward covering our costs. And, you know, it's good to support things that matter to you. You can do that monthly on patreon.com forward slash let's talk about sets, or you can send a one-off tip to Jeff at let's talk about sets.com via PayPal or at Jeff hyphen McBride on Venmo. Oh, and by the way, we do accept way more than $5. There's no ceiling really. And we know not everyone has the extra scratch, so the other thing you can do is just share our show on social media and with friends in your life who you know would love what we do. So do that right now before you get distracted. Also, if you're in New York, swing by Brickspot Comedy on Fridays at 9 p.m. for our always-packed show, Late Night Romp, which I co-run with my badass production partner, Teresa Sheffield. This week, we have prior podcast guest, Joe Zimmerman, along with Rami Youssef and Katie Hannigan. It's going to be fire. All right. Thanks so much. And the links to all of that, of course, are in the show notes. Sets. Let's talk about sets. Let's talk about 
Sets. Sets. 